Welcome back to Out the Gate, the podcast about sailing and adventure on and around San Francisco Bay. Sponsoring the show this week is QM Travels. QM stands for Quincy and Mitchell, a wonderful couple who host sailing adventures aboard Esprit, a beautiful Kelly Peterson 46. It's a well-designed boat, robust enough for sailing around the world. With QM Travels, you get more than your normal charter experience. Mitchell's a certified sailing instructor with years of teaching experience at various sailing schools, including OCSC here in the Bay. Quincy's also a skilled sailor, but if that weren't enough, Quincy's also a certified nutritionist who provides holistic, healthy meals aboard Esprit. She'll cater to any and all dietary restrictions. I've had meals made by Quincy on Esprit, and I can attest she's an amazing cook. Sail for the day, a weekend, or take an offshore passage with QM Travels, and you won't be disappointed. They'll be in the Bay until September, then they're headed to Southern California and Mexico. And this spring, they're offering sailing adventures in the Caribbean. In June, they're sailing the Challenge 72 Sea Dragon in the Line Islands of the Pacific, and they want you to join them. QM Travels have been featured in the San Francisco Chronicle, and you can listen to the interview I did with them on episode 13 of Out the Gate. Check out their schedule at qmtravels.com and follow them directly on Instagram at qmtravels. This week, I bring you the first in a two-part episode featuring an extraordinarily inspiring woman named Ilana Connor. If you picked up the February issue of Latitude 38, you can find an article by Ilana on page 74 all about her recent landfall in the Bay of Islands in New Zealand. Ilana recently single-handed her Sabre 34 Winfola across the Pacific. But what makes Ilana's story so compelling is the reason she's undertaken this journey. She grew up in the foster care system and overcame great odds simply to graduate from high school and then college. And she only really got into sailing about six years ago. But mentors here in San Francisco, combined with some personal challenges, convinced her that she should buy a boat and follow her dream of circumnavigating sooner rather than later. She's only recently begun talking about her difficult background, uh, but she's dedicating her trip now to raising awareness of the foster care system and the kids in that system. I connected with Alana, who's currently in New Zealand via WhatsApp, and here's part one of our conversation. Welcome to the podcast, Alana. I'm really excited to have you on. We hear some wonderful boat noises there in the background. Tell us where you are, specifically where you're sitting. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. Right now, I'm sitting on my boat, Windfula, in Opua, which is in the Bay of Islands on the North Island of New Zealand. You set off from San Francisco in 2017 and arrived, what, about a month ago in New Zealand? Yeah, yeah. Actually, I think it might even be a month ago today. Wow. Well, let's jump back. What inspired this journey across the Pacific, and we'll talk about where you're headed from there later, but what? tell us about the origins of this trip. This trip, the leg to New Zealand, 
actually started a couple of years ago. And uh, it just took me longer, and I went a more circuitous route than I expected. I started learning to sail in 2014, and then I bought my boat in 2016 and decided to take off as soon as it was ready, which it was about nine months later. And at the time, it was June, and so while I wanted to go to the South Pacific, I felt like realistically for my first long blue water leg, it would be better to go somewhere a little closer to home. And also hurricane season was in full swing. So I didn't want to head south off the coast of Mexico at all. So instead I decided to make the hop to Hawaii and that was my first blue water passage. And then my plan was to leave the following year from Hawaii when the season was, was right again to go to the South Pacific, to the Marquesas, and make my way to New Zealand. And I ended up sticking around in Hawaii a little longer than I expected and missed my window to the South Pacific. So after a year in Hawaii, I I really just wanted to have another blue water passage. And I missed, I missed San Francisco and felt like that would be a good place to prepare my boat for the big jump across to New Zealand. And ultimately, this is the first leg on a, on a circumnavigation. So I sailed back from Hawaii to San Francisco in October of 2018 and then left in spring of 2019 on the Pacific Puddle Jump for New Zealand. Straight from San Francisco or did you go down the coast and then over? <laughs> um, I actually went down the coast. I had intended to stop in Ensenada and have some work done on the boat before I left, just um, haul out and do a bottom job, and I had some repair I needed to do, uh, just filling in, digging out the old putty and filling in new putty on the keel, because Windfall has a, a thin keel. Instead, I ended up stopping in San Diego, and I spent a month in San Diego, and then I left from there directly for the Marquesas. And Windfall is a, uh, a Sabre 34, is that right? Yeah, she's one of the one of the last of the first make. So she's a 1985 Saber 34. Before we talk more about the passage, let's go back to 2014. How were you introduced to sailing? Actually, I was introduced to sailing in 2011. I'd always been a water person. I did loads of boat things as as a child and then also throughout school through sports and at university and I had never tried sailing uh, but was always curious about it and in 2011 I had the chance to go on a sailing trip in Greece for a week and live aboard a I think it was like a 50 foot sailboat maybe when I took that trip through Greece I just remember being totally mesmerized by the sails and the lines and I just wanted to understand how all of it worked so when I came back um, in late 2011 from the trip to Greece, I looked for sailing classes in the Bay Area, and I just thought that the cost was so prohibitive. There was just no way I could afford to take classes, and I kind of gave up on it a while. And then in 2014, I was just making a bunch of life changes at the time. I, I quit the job I'd been at for four years, and I took a little bit of time off and decided I wanted to switch gears in the industry that I was in. During that and time what off, industry um, was that? What were you working? I worked in technology, and that was a total accident. I, I don't come from an engineering or technical background. While I liked what I was doing, I was working on games. I really wanted to work more in the education sector. 
So I decided to leave games and try to see if I could shift into a slightly different kind of role and work at companies that were doing doing something in the education in the education sector. And then how did that transition lead to learning about sailing? So that year, when I was just making a bunch of changes, I also decided that I was going to explore things that I'd been interested in, and sailing was one of those things. So I looked for classes again, and um, Groupon, Groupon was super big at the time. Like that, <laughs> that's kind of when I first was paying attention to Groupon, and it was it was either Groupon or Living Social, maybe. But there was a deal for half off sailing classes at one of the sailing schools in the bay. So it and, was tech in more ways than one that got you into sailing. Absolutely. <laughs> And it's funny because sailing is what got me out of tech, so <laughs> comes full circle. Yeah. I bought that bought that coupon and I took this half off class and I really loved it. Um, we were learning on I think Ranger twenty fours or twenty twos and out on the bay and I remember it was super choppy and really windy and cold, but I just loved it. I just found sailing so exhilarating. And decided I, w- I just wanted to learn more. Because I was taking some time off between jobs, I looked for courses that would be a bit longer where I could live on the boat. And I took a course where I lived on the boat in the Gulf of California, the Sea of Cortez, for a week. Hmm. And it was a bareboat charter certification course. So I spent a week on the boat with two other students and one instructor. And um, we just cruised around and I uh, learned learned everything you learn in the ASA bareboat charter courses. And when I came back, I started looking for for places to race because I found out that that was really the best way to get experience. And I think like many women, I just didn't feel confident enough as a sailor yet. And when you finish a course like that, I, I guess you can charter a boat and be the skipper, but I certainly felt completely underqualified to do that. I really wanted to feel like everything was instinctual, that's where racing seemed like a great place to fill the skills gap. So, Sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to ask where you found uh, a place as crew and how you found a, a comfortable place as crew. I've heard many women talk about, well, the macho culture of racing sometimes being off-putting. Totally. Well, I would say the macho culture of racing is not just racing. It's across the board in sailing which is somewhat unfortunate but there are also some some stellar men and women along the way but since we're talking about macho culture I'll, I'll focus on on the men I I just got really lucky I called around it was the end of the summer I was trying to figure out which yacht club still had beer can races going and at the time it was like the end of August and the only yacht club that had a race left was South Beach Yacht Club in San Francisco by the ballpark so I called and I asked, you know, how do I get on a boat? And they said, just show up. Uh, most of the boats leave around five, so show up earlier than that and try to get someone to, to let you through the gate and then walk around and see if anybody wants to take you. I'm an introvert, as evidenced by being a single-handed sailor now. So this was kind of a jump for me, but I, I went and uh, somebody let me in through the gate and I kind of asked around. And I ended up on a dock where there was a boat called Double Play the crew and, and skipper of Double Play, everybody was smiling when I walked up to the boat. And they were laughing and joking around with the J-105 um, and the slip right next to them. And everyone was friends. And I just asked, you know, could I come with you? And they said, yeah. And that, that was the start of it. And that crew 
really became my family. After that, I raced with them for a couple of years, and, and they're still, everybody on that boat is still a really good friend and a, and a big part of my life today. What a wonderful story. <laughs> a great intro to a crew of, of people. I feel so lucky. They have a funny story about it because when I walked up to them, the skipper for the J105 was at the top of his mast, and the crew and skipper from Double Play were helping him up his mast. And I, I, I'm the only woman on, on Double Play. At the time I was, and most of the time since then I have been, um, although there's some other women that have, have come and gone and are part of the crew. So anyway, the, the skipper for the J105 was at the mast fixing something, and when I started talking to the double play crew, he jokes that they they left him hanging up there and recruited me onto their boat instead of his. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that's true. I remember him coming down safely. <laughs> it's harder to recruit from the top of a mast. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> so how do you go from not feeling that confident and trying to find... Uh, a crew to race with to single handing across the Pacific Ocean. There's quite a gap there that you have to fill, and you did it in a short amount of time. I always joke that the only reason people say I'm I'm brave, I'm strong, is because I keep arriving. And if I don't keep arriving, people are just going to say I'm really stupid and I should have gotten more experience first. How I ended up single handing is sort of a mixed story between between sailing and just um, my personal life. So I was sailing and racing on Double Play, and they bought another book called Double Down. And during the course of the couple of years that I was racing on their boat as crew, I had the chance to meet a few sailors from the Single-Handed Sailing Society, two of whom tend to rotate on and off our boat as crew as well. And they're two of my my Bay Area sailing heroes, really, and personal heroes now as well. Uh, one is Cynthia Petroka. I can't say enough wonderful things about her. I mean, I remember the first time I met her, and I remember being in awe of her every time I saw her. So she she has a hawk farm, and it's just two slips down from, from where a double down is birthed. If you don't know who she is, she's a canvas maker, and she's also an incredible sailor. She's been a sailmaker as well, and she's been in and around the, the race scene in, in San Francisco for 30, 35 years maybe. Her and another woman double-handed the Hawk Farm in the double-handed Transpac, and I think that they, they still hold the record for their division. Wow. Um, well, I'm not familiar with the Hawk Farm. Is that a, a, a make of boat? Yeah, it's a make of boat. Okay. Um, and I wasn't either. Hers is the only one I've ever seen. <laughs> huh. It's like 27 or 28 feet, I want to say. Okay. Um, so Cynthia was a really big inspiration, and I think meeting a woman who had single-handed across the ocean before, she's both double-handed there with another woman and single-handed there herself, meeting a woman who had done that so early in my experience with racing and with sailing just opened up a whole world to me, made me believe that it was possible for, for me to sail um, and cross oceans as well. And I think that's you know, that's one of the reasons that I'm out here doing this today and that I that I keep going and it's one of the things I want to inspire is I just think sometimes when you when you look around and you don't see anybody who looks like you, you might not think that you belong somewhere. But if you can look around and just see one other person who looks like you, whether that's you know a woman or a person of color or somebody who comes from a different socioeconomic background, it can just make you feel like maybe you belong too. Cynthia definitely did that for me in sailing. Another quirky, single-handed woman. That feeling of belonging gets to the deeper purpose of why you're doing this trip. You're not just 
doing it to sail. Obviously, you have a goal to circumnavigate. But tell us a little bit about the purpose behind this trip. Thanks for asking about that. I spent the last few years of my minority um, in foster care. I lost both of my parents, um, my mother when I was quite young, and then my father in complex ways in early high school. When I was in care, because I was a teenager, even though I was a good student and an athlete, it was difficult for them to find homes because there aren't that many people who are willing to take a teen, an unknown teenager into their homes. And so I bounced around a lot in high school. I actually barely finished high school because they moved me from school district to school district and I couldn't meet the requirements in my home school district anymore to graduate on time. So I finished high school in a fairly roundabout way. I got a diploma at a local community college. I was working full-time night shifts at a hotel and then I'd go to school in the morning and, and that's how I finished. I'm lucky that I had a really amazing social worker when I was in foster care who, who encouraged me and believed in me. And I had teachers and a few other adults who intervened, mostly women, and just believed in me. And they believed that I could, I could accomplish something. And they set the bar high for me. They encouraged me to go, to go to school, to go to university, not to touch drugs, and to just work really hard. I think because I had that kind of support, I, I believed that university was an option for me. So I spent the rest of my teens and my early 20s working a few different jobs, mostly as a nanny, and I put myself through community college and then transferred to a university on scholarship um, and finished my undergraduate degree. Where was that? I went to Mount Holyoke College in Massachusetts. It's a, an all-women's school. It's yeah. The, yeah. <laughs> a lot of people don't know it on the West Coast, but uh. it was a really wonderful place. So the whole time that I was I was going to school, I was thinking to myself, like, I don't see other foster kids here. You know, I don't see other people that came from foster care backgrounds. I don't see other kids who came from um, from poverty and um, from the sort of background that I did. And I thought, you know, I really want that to be different. And if I succeed, then I want to someday give back to the to the foster care community and, and hopefully reach other kids and encourage them to, you know, to make it and share whatever whatever I learned and what worked for me to put myself through school and, and just see better outcomes for foster kids. So my plan in my 20s was always that at some point in time, I, I wanted to speak with and work with and um, just try to inspire other foster kids and, and social workers um, who work with foster kids. It took a while for me to be stable in my own career and be in a place where I felt like I, I had the time and um, an ability to give back and to begin to share my story. And then I was sort of at a, at a crossroads personally at that time. It was in 2016 when I bought my boat. And one of the reasons I bought my boat was because for the last year I had been really sick. And it was the first time in my life that my body didn't do what I wanted to do. And I was really young, like way too young to, to deal with that. And I couldn't really race that season. And I couldn't backpack and, and just do all the other outdoor things that I love to do. And it was just a real wake up for me that you don't know when your body is going to stop allowing you to do what you love. So why wait? I decided that even even though my nest egg wasn't what I wanted it to be and I didn't really know how I was going to make it work, that it was just time. I had this dream to sail around the world, and so I bought Winfla. And then I realized through sailing, after I finished my first passage to Hawaii, 
I realized that by sailing this way, I was creating a story that was inspiring other people. It was inspiring other, other sailors. It was inspiring other women that I knew and friends of mine outside of the sailing community. And I was really surprised by that reaction. There were so many people saying to me, I wish I could go do what, insert dream here, but I just can't or I just don't feel ready or I'm too scared or there's just, there was always something holding them back. A number of people told me that because I was doing it. Uh, they were sort of rethinking their own priorities in their life and, and thinking more seriously about the things that they were dreaming of. And that's when I realized that if I, if I carried on with my sailing and I was more open about the background I come from, that I could use my, my solo circumnavigation as a way to reach, reach foster kids and reach the communities that serve them and um, just share that the possibilities are unlimited for us. So my goal in, in my circumnavigation is to create a story and a light to connect with social workers and, and foster kids and just encourage them to, to soar high and believe in better outcomes. Was that difficult once you made that decision to start sharing your story? Yeah, it, it was difficult. <laughs> it is difficult. And the more I was sailing and the more I was living in tune with my boat and with the ocean and the seasons and the weather, the more I felt my life became just increasingly authentic. I feel more like who I am inside now than I ever did when I sat behind a desk in technology. I think that the way that this life sort of peels away all the layers and can take you just to who you are at your core, it made it a lot more difficult for me to hide anything about myself as well. That aspect of this life has made it easier to be open about who I am and where I come from. The part that makes it difficult is that I notice that people get this sort of discomfort the moment that you mention anything that has to do with class or with poverty or with foster care, really. It seems like the, the topic just makes people really uncomfortable. I try to speak about it in the most gentle way that I can <laughs> and just to observe, you know, what part of it, what part of that story and what part of that experience is the most comfortable for other people to engage with and then just focus on that. Because I think that what happens with foster kids is that they're really society's sort of hidden problem. They don't have a lot of advocates because if they had more advocates, they probably wouldn't be in the position that they're in purely by by nature of the situation that they're in, they probably don't have family that can care for them or extended family that can care for them or advocate for them. Most foster children come from poverty, not to mention all of the other unspeakables. And then very few really succeed as adults in a way where they, they have a voice and power to, to speak about issues around foster kids. And I think that's one thing that makes foster care such a hidden issue, whereas other, other issues like autism or um, childhood cancer, those things cut across socioeconomic strata. So there are always advocates with some amount of power or influence or financial wealth that can help to bring awareness to the issue. And foster kids just don't have that. My hope is not just to inspire foster kids and the communities that serve them, but also just to make this a topic that we can feel more comfortable talking about because we're okay with talking about other things that happen to children. Why is it that we, that we can't talk about kids that don't have families and how we can take care of them better as a society. What can individuals do who don't know anything about foster care or, or feel that discomfort? What would you recommend? Oh, that's, that's a great question. Nobody's ever asked me before. <laughs> well, I, I think 
the first thing you can do is maybe just take a look inside and ask yourself why it makes you feel uncomfortable. And if the topic makes you feel uncomfortable, maybe you'll realize um, some specific reason why it does. Maybe there's something in your past. Maybe there's uh, another family member, like a cousin, um, where you know something bad happened in their childhood and, and it just wasn't talked about in your family. Or maybe it makes you uncomfortable because it's just something that makes you feel bad, you know, or sad. And I think if you can ask those questions of yourself, then you can sort of think about how, how is right for you to, to approach the topic. And if you can get comfortable with and know what your questions inside are, then you can probably engage with the topic a little bit more easily. As far as how people can help support foster kids and the communities that serve them, you know, one major area is policy, is public policies. There are people advocating for foster kids and foster care and um, making sure that it's funded properly in every state. It's generally administered on a state-by-state -state basis. So every state has their own like, laws and regulations around, around foster kids and how they're cared for. And so policy at the state level is a really important place for people to, people to get involved and to make sure that their, their representatives are thinking about this issue. Because without advocates or lobbyists, you know, no one's making sure that foster care gets the funding that it should. Another thing that people can do if they're, if they're interested in learning more about it is just get involved with a nonprofit that's working with foster kids. So there are a couple of seasonal nonprofits in almost every community that get gifts together for kids for the holidays or make sure that they have a backpack full of school supplies when they go to school. Actually, I just learned about an organization in New Zealand here on the North Island down around Wellington. What they're doing is putting together backpacks and sort of care kits for children who have just been taken from from their families and put into foster care so that when they arrive somewhere, you, sometimes when you enter foster care, you, you enter foster care with nothing. I had one box of belongings when I was taken into custody. You start your life all over again. It can be really comforting just to have something to hold on to. I know that this organization, I think they do things like put, put a blanket in there or a stuffed animal in there and maybe some art supplies so kids can, can be expressing themselves. So that organization in particular, I think, is super cool, and it's kind of filling this gap. And after learning about that, I thought, oh, man, I would love to see an organization like that everywhere, in every county across the U.S., just putting together comfort kits for kids that are entering care. Beyond um, those acts, if you're interested in getting more involved, there's an organization called CASA. It's national, um, although I believe it's also administered at a state or county level. And CASA stands for Court Appointed Special Advocate. It takes quite a big time commitment, but Court Appointed Special Advocates are actually trained in how to deal with the privacy issues with foster kids, how to deal with some of some of their other issues. And those special advocates are, are actually appointed by a judge for a specific child, and they become the advocate for that child for a minimum of one year, but frequently for a longer duration if, if they choose. And that person is like an independent advocate for that child outside of their foster home, outside of their birth family, outside of the social work organization. They're purely volunteer, and they meet with the child typically once a week, but um, in some circumstances it can just be a couple times a month. They are this person who has like a bird's eye view of everything in that child's life and can advocate for what's best for the child. So when the child's uh, case comes back before the court, the CASA advocate comes and is able to um, 
to speak about what they know about the child's um, entire experience and, and deliver uh, a written report with recommendations for what's best for the child. Wow. Well, there are a lot of different <laughs> ways uh, that I had no idea about. Thank you for, sh- yeah. for sharing all that. My mind goes to the fact that we, we began this conversation with you talking about looking around as a child and or as a university student and not seeing anybody in the same background. And also, I guess, in the sailing community, when you were looking around and not seeing many other women sailing, have you uh, gotten any feedback from current children in in the foster care system who who you've been able to connect with and 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 been a beacon for yeah so at this point in time i'm actually looking for opportunities to connect with foster kids in new zealand and this is where i'm hoping to make some of that magic happen um so far i've had some chances to connect with teachers and with social workers um and a little bit with kids children that were in a in impoverished sort of living conditions but not necessarily in foster care so, um, so I'm really hoping in my time in New Zealand that I'll have a chance to connect directly with some, some foster kids here. It's an inspiring story. Thank you. <laughs> uh, I have to say, it truly, truly is. And your journey's not over yet. It's, it's still going. <laughs> it feels like it's just beginning. <laughs> I crossed the whole ocean, and it still feels like it's just begun. Hope you enjoyed the inspiring first half of my interview with Alana. In the second part, next week, we talk more about her passage across the Pacific, including some pretty major challenges she faced. As I mentioned at the top of the show, Alana has an article in this month's episode of Latitude 38, so don't miss that. Also, you can follow her on the web at peregrinasales.com. That's peregrina, P-E-R-E-G-R-I-N-A, sales.com. And I wanted to leave you this week with a story Alana shared with me from carehouse.org, a foster care CASA organization in Oakland. A young sister and brother who are in the foster care system, Becky, age 5, and Tommy, age 7, were recently asked what they wanted their family to be like. And here's what they wrote. We want not to have to go from foster home to foster home. We want a parent who cares for us and kisses us goodnight. We want our own rooms, if possible. We want mom and dad time. We want parents who won't be mean to us. We want someone to pack our lunches and help us with our homework. We want not to worry about what we're going to eat or if we'll be on the street. In the show notes for this episode, I've listed foster care organizations you can support. Thanks again for listening. I'm Ben Shaw, host and producer of the show. Until next week, smooth sailing.